Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're somebody who's new, it's good to have you for this Memorial Day weekend. My name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I usually begin by telling what we call a reaching people with Jesus story. Reaching people with Jesus is our mission here at Crosswinds. And I just tell a story about how some people, either on here in the Spirit Lake campus or on the Spencer campus, are going about that in a really everyday, ordinary way. But I have something different for you this morning. Because today is actually my father's birthday. My dad is 90 years old today. That's pretty amazing. And I want to tell you a little reaching people with Jesus story that actually connects back to my father. And you're like, how does your dad's 90th birthday tie into reaching people with Jesus? Well, let me tell you. For those of you who don't know, I'm an only child. I'm one of those only children and one of those unexpected children. But God graciously gave me two parents who love Jesus. Uh, I grew up in the church. Whenever the doors were unlocked, mom and dad were there. And I remember when I was about nine years old, when my parents made the decision to attend a different church because they were concerned the church that we were in really wasn't teaching from the Bible. So they began driving about 30 minutes each way to be able to get to a church that had Bible preaching in it because they wanted me to grow up in a church where the Bible was taught. That was very important. Now, my parents were actively involved in the church, not just regularly attending the church. My mom taught in the little kid's Sunday school. My dad has an accounting background. He was one of those guys that stayed after church and counted the money. And I still remember, like, how much money did they get? It takes forever, Dad. And then riding with Dad to the bank to drop the money off in the the night deposit box. And, And all these things, I was very thankful to be a kid who grew up in a home where my parents taught the Bible at home. And my parents were committed to being in a church where the Bible was taught. And my parents were also committed to serving in the church where they were a part of. And you wonder, how does all this connect with us today reaching people with Jesus? Have you ever read Psalm 127? Let me read for you verses three through five of that Psalm. It says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I didn't cover the first two verses of the psalm, but I'll briefly tell you what they're about. The first two verses of Psalm 127 says that if you're gonna give your life to anything, you wanna make sure you give your life to a project and to things that God is behind. God is committed to the success of, because God isn't committed to the success of everything out there, but he is committed to the success of some things out there, and he's behind that. And when you get to verses three through five, what David does in this psalm is give us one example project that we can give our lives to that God is committed to the success of and that he will help us in. 
and that is raising our children. Raising our children to know and love Jesus Christ. God is committed to that. And he says, children are not an inconvenience in our life. The children we have are a reward from God in this life. And he describes children like this. They're like arrows. Arrows are shot from the archer's bow, and an arrow makes an impact at a place and time that the archer can never be. Now, mom and dad, I want you to think about this. When you give yourself to teaching your children, to nesting in your children and raising your children to know and love Jesus. When you pray with your children at bedtime, when you teach your children the Bible stories, when you bring them to church and you model serving in church, what you are doing is setting a foundation for Christ in their life, which will remain with them. And one day, when your children leave your home, when they are shot out from your home, they will make an impact at a place and a time you will never be, and they will bring Jesus with them and make an impact for Christ at a place and time you will not be. God is committed to help you raise your children to know and love Jesus. And today, with today is my dad's 90th birthday, I want to thank him because he and my mom spent time impacting me for Jesus. I grew up on the East Coast. I was shot out of their home. They had no idea that I would land in Iowa and I would have the privilege of being your pastor for the last, what is it, 15, 16 years? And what I get to do in my life is in a large part because of the good foundation my parents laid in my life. And they had no idea that they would be able to have a role in being able to, me being able to share the word of God with you. So parents, I want you to know that when you are spending time with your children, pouring the gospel into your children, teaching them Bible verses, praying with them, God is behind that task. He's committed to helping you with that task. And one day when your children leave the home, they will make an impact for Jesus at a place and time you will never be. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I wanted to share that with you. One of the best things you can do to help reach people with Jesus is to pour into your kids because they will share the gospel in places you cannot go. Now, let's jump into our text this morning. This morning we are in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 10. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10 is actually a continuation of 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we looked at that last week. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is the, that was a story of the kindness of King David. If you were with us last week, you'll know that David set out to show kindness um, to the descendants of Saul and the son of Jonathan. There was only one person he was able to find who was left. It was a man who life had been very hard on. His name, the man's name was Mephibosheth. He, he was a cripple. 
and through some series of circumstances that we don't know, he had lost his vast inheritance from his family line. And he was literally living in the desert, a place called Lodabar, the middle of nowhere, going no place as a cripple. But David sought him out. And David restored the inheritance he had lost. David adopted him into his family, and he had Mephibosheth would eat forever at the very table of David sitting next to the sons and daughters of the king. David took Mephibosheth from being a nobody to blessing him beyond his wildest dreams because of the kindness of the king. But last week we also saw that David's kindness to Mephibosheth is simply a mini preview of what is God's kindness to us through the greater son of David named Jesus Christ. That God sought us out when we were lost and when we were crippled by sin. God, through Jesus, adopted us into God's family making us brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. God has given us a vast inheritance. The riches of Jesus Christ for all eternity are ours because we are brothers and sisters of Jesus. If you were impressed with David's kindness to Mephibosheth, you should be far more impressed with God's kindness to us through Jesus Christ. Last week I said... Wouldn't it be incredibly crazy if Mephibosheth turned his back on the kindness of the king? Imagine that. Imagine if, though David had brought him into the palace, Mephibosheth turned his back on that and went back to the desert. Imagine if Mephibosheth turned his back on the riches of the king and he went back to living in in complete poverty. Imagine if Mephibosheth turned his back from being adopted as to brother as to a brother into excuse me into David's family and went back to living as nothing in obscurity. That would be loony. That would be completely foolish to turn your back on the kindness of the king. But today, as we turn the page in our text and we come to 2 Samuel chapter 10, we find that is what a group of people did. The group of people is known as the Ammonites. David intended to extend the kindness of the king to them. But instead of embracing David's kindness, they turned their back on David's kindness and they will pay brutally for it. The introduction of the Ammonites in this chapter sets us up for what is the pivotal chapter in 2 Samuel, which is the 11th chapter. In the 11th chapter, that's a well-known chapter. That's where David enters into an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. Then he arranges to have her husband Uriah bumped off to, to cover his sin. That's the pivot in the book, because up to this point, it's been the rise of David. But after chapter 11, it becomes the fall and descent of David. And I know you're instantly thinking, man, I can't wait for next week's message. Well, it's not going to actually happen next week. Next week, we'll begin our summer series on the tongue and speech. So we won't actually get to 2 Samuel chapter 11 till fall, but, but look forward to it. Today, we just have the final chapter of 
Second Samuel that we'll look at this, this spring, which is chapter 10. So let's take your outline out and dive right in. I have your notes for you. First thing is this. The Ammonites rejected David's kindness. Verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. The king of the Ammonites who died was a man named Nahash. Uh, Nahash played an important role in Israel's history. You may remember him back from 1 Samuel. In the early days of King Saul, he was the cruel tyrant who had conquered most of the Jordan or most of the area east of the Jordan River. Uh, his kingdom was the king of Ammon. Go ahead and put that up if you could. You can see where Ammon was there. It's just east of the Jordan River. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we know there was only one city left to the east of the Jordan that he had not yet conquered. That was the city of Jabesh Gilead. And we read about how Saul was actually used by God to save the people of Jabesh Gilead. Nahash had a, was a real nasty, cruel guy. We learned at that time he had this habit that when he conquered people, he gouged out the right eye of every man, woman, and child, which obviously made it very easy to identify who were the conquered people and who were the free people. Now, he had this long history of brutality towards the Israelites. And here we read that Nahash had died, the king of the Ammonites. In the Old Testament, when a king died, that provided an opportunity of vulnerability in the nation until the new king had firmly established power. And many of the surrounding countries would usually try to take advantage of the weakness of a kingdom after the death of a king. You would expect that is what David would do with these enemies of the Israelites. But that is not what we find. Here we see this in verse 2. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Boy, this is a complete surprise. The word loyally here, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It's the same word used in the last chapter to describe the kind of kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth. Just as Jonathan had been so kind to David, he wanted to show David wanted to show kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Here in this chapter, we read Nahash had been incredibly kind to David, and David wanted to show kindness to his son as well. And at first when I was studying this, I'm like, why would Nahash have shown kindness to David? This was the guy who gouged his eyes out of everybody. He was the enemy of King Saul. What's going on? At this point, there's a little bit of speculation that's involved, and I think I know what happened. We know in 1 Samuel, if you were with us for earlier in the studies, that David was on the run for King, from King Saul for a long time. And when David was on the run, the enemies of King Saul started to become the friends of David. You remember when David received help from the Moabites, 
who were actually enemies of the Israelites. David received help and hid among the Philistines who were enemies of the Israelites. But now they were helping David. And apparently, David also received help from the Ammonites who were enemies of King Saul, but they were willing to help David. So David has received kindness from this pagan king And so he wants to return kindness to his son and show loyalty to his son. And I thought there's a great application here before we go too much farther. David showed kindness to his godless pagan neighbors. He didn't hate them. In fact, he went out of his way, we see here, to love them. And I thought, what a good example for us. Because folks, if you've been part of the church, you know the church can sort of become like a little bubble, can't it? The only people you spend time with are church people. The only people you start to care about after a while are church people. And we start to ignore the lost people in the world around us. We neglect to show kindness and love to the lost people in the world around us. But that's not what David did. He intentionally went out of his way to show kindness to people who were actually far from God. Isn't this what the scripture tells us to do? For instance, if you see in your outlines, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of, of faith. Not only to those who are of the household of faith, but especially to them. 1 Thessalonians 5.15. But always seek to do good to one another and to who? And to everyone. Not just fellow Christians, but to others in the world around us. Even if they're far from God, seek to sow kindness and goodness to them. So David is intent in showing kindness to Hanan and the death of his father. And here's what David does. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. David sent some high-ranking officials from his kingdom to probably attend what would have been the state funeral for Nahash in the Ammonite kingdom. Very similar to what we had recently with the death of the queen in England. Different nations from around the world sent their representatives to be there for the funeral. Very similar thing going on here. And David's servants, it says, came into the land of the Ammonites. Uh, So far, so good, no problem. But then we continue. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan the Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Uh, the princes of the Ammonites, most likely they are the military advisors of the nations, and they interpret what is David's kindness as an act of hostility. They assumed the worst of David's intentions, not the best of David's intentions. In their hearts, 
they could not conceive of David showing kindness to them. They were sure that he was showing evil towards them. And since their thoughts were wicked and scheming all the time, they assumed that that must mean that David's thoughts were wicked and scheming all the time. And this brings us to a principle of something we've seen all, many times in life, isn't it? What we often accuse people of is the very thing that we are guilty of. Ever seen that in life? Oh, yeah. I have this bullet point for you. If you think the worst of other people, you, ro you will wrongfully assume they often think the worst of you. Isn't that true? The thoughts we sow in our own hearts are the thoughts we assume everybody else is sowing in their hearts. Another bullet point. Those who assume the worst of others are actually just revealing the darkness of their own hearts. So I want to ask you, in the relationships you have with other people, do you assume they have the worst of motives and desires, or do you assume that the people around you have the best of motives and desires? If you're somebody who always assumes the worst of others, let me be honest with you. That is revealing the sinfulness of your own heart, not necessarily the sinfulness of their heart. This ever happened to you? where you get into a spat with your spouse, they say something or they do something and you cannot believe they said such a nasty thing. They did such a bad thing. So you strike back with all the venom you have. You say nasty things. You do nasty things. And then later on in the day, temperature goes down. You finally talk for a little bit. And you find out that what your spouse said to you, they didn't mean to hurt you at all. You just heard it wrong. You just took it wrong. You just assumed the worst of them rather than the best of them. And it gave you, in your mind, a green light to let the evil out of your own heart spray all over them. Anybody done that one? Yeah. And really where the problem is, is with the person that we see in the mirror, not with our spouse in that moment. Now that brings me to another point. In the church, with brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit in their hearts, it is sinful to assume the worst of motives about them instead of the best of motives about them. With brothers and sisters in the church, who have hold the Holy Spirit in their life, when we see something in the church that is not done exactly the way that we do it, and then we instantly start assuming the worst of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and instead of assuming the best of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we go to our friends and we start gossiping to other people about how the music is too loud, the lights are too bright, and if they were real Christians, they would have homemade cookies at the Gathering Grounds coffee bar, not the store-bought ones. You know how this goes, right? 
And what that is revealing is the fact that we're assuming the worst of our brothers and sisters in Christ instead of the best. That is revealing the sinfulness of our own hearts, not the sinfulness of our brothers and sisters in Christ's hearts. Now, folks, when we look in the mirror on that one, I think we all can say we're guilty of that, can't we? But this is the same thing that Hanun is doing with David. David intends the absolute best. Same word from chapter 9. He's going to show kindness to Hanan, loving kindness. He's going to show faithfulness to this young man. But what does he do? He projects onto David the wickedness of his own heart that was never actually in David's heart at all. And it's the same kind of thing that we do so often. The story continues. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. David sent the servants to show kindness to David, to show kindness to Hanan, rather. Uh, Hanan decided he'd return the kindness with an insult. He shaves off half their beard. By the way, that's not shave off half horizontally. That was shave off half vertically. The idea is Hanan wants to make them look completely ridiculous in public. Now, in the Jews, by the way, they always had beards. If you realize that, the Jewish men had to have beards, and that was sort of their pride. Forcefully shaving a Jewish man's beard was an intentional insult. Shaving half of the beard was an even greater insult because they looked just loony in public. Maybe today it's the rough equivalent of shaving half of someone's head and their left eyebrow. Not the kind of thing you want to have happen to you in public. Not only that, but Hanan then decides to cut their garments, like at the belly button area. If you know in the Old Testament, the men wore long flowing robes. So now these high-ranking government officials have half of a beard and no pants. This is intended to be an insult. They are 40 miles away from Jerusalem, and Hanan says, time to walk home in public. Bye. Hope you enjoy the walk. That's an insult, isn't it? And David intended nothing but the best. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. That's the understatement of the month right there. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. And I assume the people that David sent to them also had a change of clothes. And not just let your beards grow back. Jericho, by the way, is 14 miles outside of Jerusalem. So please don't let anybody look at you and make fun of you. I care about you. Then we come to our second point. Assuming the worst of people and trying to get even only leads to hostility. At this point, with this terrible insult, David, you would expect to gather his army. You would expect David to go attack the Ammonites and try and get even with them. Imagine our response if President Biden sent representatives from his cabinet to Russia for a state funeral, and Putin took away their pants and then shaved half of their heads and sent them home. How would we react to that? Anybody be upset? Yeah. 
Well, you think David would be upset, but David, who by the way has won every battle up to this point because God is on his side, David does not want to stir up trouble. He's kind to this man. He absorbs the insult this man has done to him. It's like I often tell my kids, when someone insults you, let it be like water off a duck's back. In other words, just shake it off. Don't let it absorb it into you. Shake it off before it gets into you. Don't always take everyone's words so seriously. And this is what Paul tells us to do. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is what David is going to do. He's going to try and let this insult go by and live peaceably with this man. But then we read this. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. Let me pause there. I want you to notice here, we are not told that this was David's reaction. The Ammonites did this, and they saw what they had done to David this way. They knew that they had seriously insulted David's representatives, and they expected David to be hopping mad at them and to want to go to war with them. David was not this way, but this is what they assumed David would react this way. Now, before we go much further, I want to point out something I put in my notes here. They didn't have to assume the worst of David, did they? They could have assumed the best of David. They didn't have to let the relationship between them and David degrade, did they? But they chose to let the relationship between them and David degrade. They could have sent emissaries. They could have talked they could have tried out to iron out what was a misunderstanding, but they, they didn't do that. They just hardened themselves and assumed the worse. Isn't this the way most relationships end up breaking down? Nobody wants to humble themselves. Nobody wants to assume the best of the other person. They just want to assume the worst. And instead of trying to make a way to peace, people choose to try and make a way for war. Isn't that how most relationships go bad? Because of lack of talk, not because of abundance of talk? This is what happens here. They choose to make a way for war rather than try and prepare for peace and restoration. And this is what we read. The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maka with 1,000 men, and the king of Tob with 12,000 men. They are not trying to restore a relationship. They're convinced that David will try to go to war with them, so they hire 33,000 mercenaries. Let me show you where they come from. You can see where Zab is up there. You can see where Maka is and Tob and where Ammon is. These are all kingdoms just to the north of Israel. David at this point has made zero threats or acts of hostility against them. 
The reason they're acting this way is remember, they're projecting the evil intents of their own heart onto David's heart. But it didn't take long for David's intelligence network to realize something was up. And by the way, he did not need to fly a Chinese spy balloon over the country of Ammon to find out. People just sort of told him uh, about that. And this is what we read. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. Joab was his military commander. He's a little feisty guy. Remember earlier, he's the guy who bumped off Abner. Uh, But David doesn't quite know how to get rid of him because he's actually David's sister's son. And when you have family, you know, it's oftentimes difficult to deal with things. So he has Joab, but he also sends the mighty men. Uh, We'll deal with the mighty men and learn more about them in the future. This is not the full army. This is the special ops group a small group of limited men who happen to be very, very good in battle. And here's what happens next. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in, the, in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Show you a little map of what's happening. Uh, you see Rabbah, which is the capital city of Ammon there. And there's Medaba, which is right there to the south of it in the open country. Uh, so you have the 33,000 mercenary troops on the south side. Uh, but you have the troops of the Ammonites protecting the city of Rabbah on the, the north side. Incidentally, these troops use horses, they use chariots, they use the latest in military technology, and as we learned about three weeks ago, the Jews are not allowed to use horses and not allowed to use chariots. They're soldiers on foot. They do not have the latest in military technology. And Joab and his small group of mighty men come out there. Really, it's purely a defensive maneuver at this point, and this is what they see. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear. He has the 33,000 mercenaries behind him, the Ammonite soldiers in front of them. This is not what he's expected. This is not what he's planned for. And this is not what he's prepared for with a group, a limited group of mighty men. So he needed a plan. So he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of the men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. The best troops would join him in fighting the 33,000 Syrians in the open country, massively outnumbered. And they wanted the open country because that's where chariots would work. That's where horses would work. And they'd have the greatest advantage against the Israelites. His brother took some troops and went to the north to fight against the Ammonites who were guarding the city. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. These are like Christian brothers. Christian brothers have one another's backs in times of trouble. Right, guys? It's exactly what he's doing. I've got your back. Then he says, be of good courage. 
and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. Now Joab is giving a pep talk to his younger brother, Abishai. We're massively outnumbered here. This does not look God good. Do not be fearful. You need to have a lot of courage and fight for our people and for the cities of our God because if we lose to these guys, they're going to invade and we're going to be overrun. But then he says this, a lot of instruction here. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Abishai, we're facing overwhelming opposition. Do our absolute best. Fight to defend our people. Fight to defend our cities. But looking at these odds, we may not survive today. We may not come out of this one alive. And if that's the way God has it go, it's okay. Because God is just doing what seems good to him. What an important piece of instruction for the difficulties of life. We prepare our best, we do our best, but the outcome is in the Lord's hands. In whichever way it goes, we know we can trust that the Lord is good and he has a good plan over all these things. If I live today or if I die today, it's whatever the Lord says is the right thing. And that's okay with me. Maybe you're in a difficult time today. Maybe you're struggling with a child. Maybe you're struggling with sickness, like cancer. Maybe there's that possibility where your business may shut down. How do you handle those things? Will you have courage? You do your absolute best. You turn and you trust in the Lord. But that doesn't necessarily mean that person will be healed of cancer. That doesn't necessarily mean the troubles will go away with your child. That doesn't necessarily mean your business will be a success. Maybe that person with cancer will die. Maybe your business will shut down. But either way, God is still good. And we can trust the outcome, even if we don't understand where it's going. That's what Joab says. You wonder, how does this work its way out in everyday life? Let me give you another picture of this. Remember Jesus as he went into Jerusalem? Jesus who's healed the sick. Jesus who's raised the dead. Jesus who's been given a wonderful red carpet welcome into the city is then turned around and betrayed by Judas. He's run through a kangaroo court of the Jewish leaders and then uh, decided to be executed by the Romans. And there is Jesus, the one person who has never done any wrong in this world, who is being crucified, the greatest injustice in the history of the universe taking place. And you can picture um, the apostles looking at this. God, if you were good, how could you let this happen to, to, to Jesus? But what we didn't see and didn't know is that God was good, and God had a very good plan 
because he was having Jesus die in your place for your sin, making the only way for us to be restored into our relationship with God. So why it looked like it wasn't good in the moment. From God's perspective, if you widen it out enough, oh yes, it was the greatest good to ever take place. So if you are in one of those situations in life where you're praying that someone who has cancer would be healed, you're praying the job would not shut down, and it doesn't go the way you want it to go, that does not mean God isn't good. It means if you back it out far enough and you were to see it from a wide enough angle from God's perspective, you would say, yes, God, you are good and you have a good plan even in this tough time. I guarantee you when we get to heaven and we look back on our life and we see the painful things that took place in our life, we're not gonna look at God and say, you know, I think you could have planned that a lot better. We're gonna look at God and say, you're wise, you're good, you're loving, and you're kind. Now I get it. And that's what Job is bringing, that's the point Job is bringing home. So Job and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. No details are given of the battle. I assume the Syrians expect to totally smoke these Israelites on foot, but it doesn't go that way. They're getting smoked, so they quickly throw in the towel. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. When they've lost their 33,000 mercenaries, they go like chickens and hide behind the wall. Now it brings us to our next point. It's our pride that won't let hostilities end. One thing any team doesn't like is losing to an underdog, right? If you're a high school team and you play a much smaller school than basketball and they skunk you, you are looking for a rematch because you have to save your pride. That's what happens with the Syrians. They go home and people are saying, you lost to that little group of Israelites on foot? What's wrong with you? And so they're eager for a rematch. But when the Syrians saw they'd been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helan with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. Now we met Hadadezer back in 2 Samuel chapter 8. He's the king of the Zobites. Historically, in a bigger perspective, he has conquered a number of kingdoms around him. He is a very large and powerful king. So he is determined to go south and grind the Israelites literally into dust for humiliating the 33,000 Syrians before this. They gather at Helam, which is 40 miles east of the Sea of Galilee. Go ahead and put that up. You can see where Helam is right there, in the bottom part of the territory. The last battle, there were 33,000 troops, mercenaries, that had gathered against the Israelites. Now, there is a lot more than 33,000. Far more than 33,000. 
We read this, and when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together, not just the mighty men, and he crossed the Jordan and came to Helan. Everybody is going out to fight on this one. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. The last battle, there were 33,000 mercenaries. In this battle, David and his men kill 40,000 in the cavalry. Can you imagine how big the size of the army was? And Shobak, the commander of the army, is wounded and dies. Now, why is this possible? Why is David beating this overwhelming army? And we know this from 2 Samuel chapter 8. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. God was on his side. So after losing a second time, uh, these Syrians decide they're going to change their tune. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to him. They decided to go from fighting against God's king to making peace with God's king. And what about the Ammonites who started all this trouble? Well, it ends with this. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Now, they are completely on their own. By the way, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, David will completely destroy them once and for all. What is the lesson that we're to take home from all this? I want to put together 2 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 10 and look at this. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see the kindness of David was received and embraced by Mephibosheth. Remember, he was given a vast inheritance. He was adopted to be one of the part of David's own family line, a seat at David's table. He was blessed beyond his wildest dreams because of the king's kindness. But in 2 Samuel chapter 10, the Ammonites despise the king's kindness. They fought against the king's kindness and ultimately they will be destroyed by the same king who sought to be kind to them will destroy them. But there's a third group in here and that's the Syrians. The Syrians, they fought against David But eventually, after getting beat up enough, they came to their senses and actually embraced the kindness of the king and became servants of David. And as I thought about this in my study, I said, these three different responses to the kindness of King David parallel the three different responses that we can have to the kindness of King Jesus to us. We can embrace the kindness of King Jesus and be like Mephibosheth, adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, a vast inheritance, blessed beyond our wildest dreams because Jesus is that good and he loves you. Or this morning, we can be like the Ammonites. 
we can resist the kindness of King Jesus. We can fight against the kindness of King Jesus and live life on our own, go our own way. And I'll tell you how it ends. You end up being destroyed by King Jesus, not blessed by him. But there is a third option that I think maybe some of us are in this morning, and that's the option of the Syrians. Many of us have spent time fighting the kindness of King Jesus. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. We're convinced that Jesus wants to take life from us instead of give life to us. But as we've done that, man, life has been rough. It's been one disaster and one heartache after another. Just like the Syrians had one defeat after another. But they came to their senses. Instead of fighting against the king, they embraced the kindness of the king. This morning, if you have been fighting against King Jesus, going your own way, doing your own thing, thinking that Jesus is about to take your life, not to give your life, be like the Syrians, turn from fighting him, and today choose to embrace him. He is a kind king. He is a good king who desperately loves you, wants to adopt you into his own family, make you brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and give you the vast inheritance of Jesus for all eternity, not because he has to, but because he loves you. And yes, the good news is that good. So every single one in this room is in one of those positions. Today, you're either Mephibosheth, who's embraced the kindness of Jesus, or you're like the Ammonites, who's resisting it, or you're like the Syrians, who's been really having a hard time, but today will you come to your senses and embrace it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these two chapters, nine and 10, which give us a greater understanding of the kindness of King David, which was just a miniature example of the much greater kindness of King Jesus that you offer to us. I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has been resisting the kindness of Jesus, fighting against Jesus, that today they would come to their senses and embrace him as their Lord and Savior and believe the truth that Jesus' plans for them and desires for them are good and their king is kind and their king is wise. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.